All right, good morning once again. Welcome to Hope and Anchor Church. I look forward to jumping into God's Word this morning as we continue in our teaching series, Rock of Ages. Uh, this is week number 19. I wish I, I should probably prep for this part because I never remember exactly what... 19, yes. Uh, in our learning adventure with the Apostle Peter, and uh, today we get to the part of 1 Peter chapter 3 that ca has caused believers for millennia to go... Huh? What? So, uh, I think together we can all say, what? But hopefully come away with, oh. Maybe we'll come away with a little bit more of an, oh, okay. Um, today as we unpack what the Apostle Peter shares with us about Christ and his authority gained through his life, his death, and his resurrection. So today's message is called Extra Pieces. <laughs> extra pieces. In the uh, spring of 22, spring of last year, my wife and I did something that we've never done before. We purchased a house to operate as an Airbnb. As if we didn't have enough going on. We decided to do this other thing. Truth be told, we wanted a vacation home. We wanted a vacation home by a river, uh, and we found one. We found one in a town called Eminence, Missouri, which is about two, two hours and 15 minutes from here. And we wanted other people to pay for it. <laughs> That's the best solution, right? Buy the vacation house and have other people pay for it. Uh, so now we have an Airbnb by the Jack's Fork and the Current River. Um, as we were prepping the house for its Airbnb debut, we had to buy stuff to outfit the house for guests. We had to buy bunk beds, lamps, bedding, towels, all kinds of stuff for the house. Also, my wife wanted a movable island for the kitchen. Do you know what that is? Like in the middle of the kitchen, kind of big open floor. You want this like place in the middle, a movable island for storing pots and pans, but also to provide some extra seating uh, for mealtime. So we found a put it together yourself option on Amazon an option that I was soon unpacking rather, rather miserably on the kitchen floor of our house in eminence. I have never put together a more elaborate piece of furniture in my life. Ikea, eat your heart out. This was awful. I mean, I opened it, you know, you wonder, it's like, how'd they fit this into a flat package? And you open it, and it's just like, Pure misery explodes in your house. Like, uh, um, super elaborate. There were so many pieces of wood, hinges, screws, bolts, casters, lying arrayed before my eyes, and I began to despair. I began to feel like a prisoner of the task that I had been assigned. Have you ever felt that? Where you know, the be you know when it began, but you're pretty sure it's never going to end. It's like, this is, this is it. This is how it ends. Lord, come quickly. You know, it's like, this, I, I, they will find my bones scattered among these pieces of the, uh, the uh, Amazon put-it-together-yourself island that vomited on our house. Refreshingly, the instruction booklet 
was okay. It seemed to have been written by someone who actually spoke English. Because you've been in that situation before. It's like they just used Google Translate from some foreign language and it's not good. It's funny, but it's not helpful. Uh, additionally, the book was written in uh, uh, comprehensible English, but also all the parts and all the pieces were uh, actually marked and sorted pretty well. So things were looking up. After a couple of hours, after a couple of hours, the kitchen island was assembled and I rolled it into place. As I stood back and I surveyed the scene, I was filled with a feeling of satisfaction. I had satisfaction. You've had that feeling, right? Where that insurmountable task has been mounted, surmounted, surmounted. Yes. Yeah, it's like I surmounted. I surmounted the task that I felt previously was insurmountable. I stood back, I surveyed the scene with satisfaction, yet I noticed there among the packaging on the floor next to the instructions were some extra screws. Extra screws. In that moment, I was beset by doubts. I was beset by doubts. What could I have missed? What did I miss? I followed everything. I followed the instructions step by tedious step. How could I have possibly skipped something? Yet there they were, staring at me from the floor, from inside their little plastic bags, unused. So I reinspected my work. I, I consulted the booklet. I found that everything was indeed in place. So what was I to make of these extra pieces? There they were. What was I to make of these extra pieces? Were they leftover things that I forgot? Or uh, were they extra supplies provided by the manufacturer? Well, wonder no more. Happily, I discovered it to be the latter. The extra pieces were included uh, in the package just in case uh, I lost, a, lost one of the screws or I needed a replacement. How thoughtful! So, I, just in case, I didn't throw them away. Guess where they went? Junk drawer. Everyone has the junk drawer, so they're, to this day, living in our junk drawer and will never be messed with again. I'm sure they'll just be there until Jesus returns. Because you never know when the extra pieces will come in handy. So, Leftover extra pieces, leftover screws. I get that same leftover screws feeling as I read 1 Peter chapter 3, specifically the part about Noah and about Christ preaching to the rebellious spirits in captivity. Anybody know I was going, that's where I was going with all this? The part where Jesus, where Paul's talking about, or Peter is talking about Jesus preaching to the rebellious spirits in captivity. I get to this part and I sign myself stepping back saying, wait. Did I miss something? Did I miss something? This feels like a departure. Is this a leftover part of his letter, letter or, or something extra that was tacked on? You know, things have been flowing pretty nicely up until this point, fitting together rather well. And then Peter takes a departure into what is considered by most readers and theologians to be the most difficult part of his letter. Difficult for several reasons, but one is just the head-scratching factor, like, what? Huh? Okay, upon first encounter, I think it's easy 
to think that this is just an extraneous thought, maybe a stray paragraph that was tacked into the passage after uh, 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 tacked into the passage that had been flowing about uh, respecting authority, wives, slaves, uh, suffering. Uh, they thought, well, maybe it was just stuffed in here about suffering for doing right. Maybe it was just this leftover piece like, well, let's just put it in here. Maybe a scribe did it. But here's the thing for us today. We must fight the temptation to say, I don't know what to do with this, so I think I'll just skip it. You know, me as a teacher, I'm teaching through this whole letter, and I can't get around this part. I need to teach it. I don't sometimes come into a passage or a section of a passage understanding it, so I have to be the first student of this. So I remember writing this passage, I had to press into it, and, set, and I had to avoid that feeling that you may have felt when you've encountered this passage before. Fight the temptation to skip it because you're not sure what to do with it. Have you ever come to a place of Scripture like that? Like, I'm sure that means something, but I don't know. I don't know what to do with it. I'm not that grown up of a Christian yet, I guess. I don't understand. Well, you're not alone, but don't skip it. Clearly, we must believe it is here for a reason, and it can thus lead us into a fuller understanding of the meaning of suffering as a follower of Jesus Christ and help us understand something about His victory, the victory we have in Him. So, if you're ready, if you're ready to step back and see some extra pieces on the ground, open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. And today we're going to read verses 13 through 22. Now, I'm going to spend some time giving you some structure to follow for this, and I'm not saying this is the world's best exposition of this passage, but hopefully it'll give us some pointers and some pegs to hang some new understanding on, okay? 1 Peter 3, 13-22. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then, if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but He died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but He was raised to life in the Spirit. So He went and preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And, what, and that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God, and all the angels and authorities and powers accept His authority. What a good passage. It's kind, of like a, it's kind of like a sandwich. That first part, we get it. The last part, yeah, sounds good. Kind of flows with what the rest of the Peter's been talking about. But that middle part, it's like a sandwich that you're like, 
what is this? <laughs> what kind of sandwich is this? You know, there's something in the middle there that's like, whoa, 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 that's, that's a little odd. And I'm gonna explain a little bit about why that strikes us as odd. Now, to get started, if you've got a, if you're taking notes, let me help you here. There are three important sections in this passage. There are three sections to this passage. Here's how we're going to break it down. Break it, break it, break it down. I always like to say that when I say break it down. It's like my old rapper instincts. Uh, verses 13 through 17. Verse 18 and verse 19 through 22. Okay, those are our three sections, okay? Verse 13 through 17 a right, is a right perspective on suffering and trust in God. Okay, verses 13 through 17, a right perspective on suffering and trust in God. Verse 18 is a transitional statement about Christ's suffering and victory. So verse 18 is a transitional statement about Christ's suffering and victory. And lastly, verses 19 through 22 gives us insight into Jesus' authority and His saving work, the saving work found in His death and resurrection. Okay, so verses 19 through 20 is insight into Jesus' authority and His saving work, the saving work in His death and resurrection. Does everyone get that? That's writing that down. Okay, I'm going to start. Verse 13 through 17 is a right perspective on suffering and trust in God. Verse 18, a transitional statement about Christ's suffering and victory. Verse 19 through 22, insight into Jesus' authority and His saving work through His death and resurrection. It's always like the PowerPoint professor that's like clicking through too fast. And you're like, no, stop, go back. I hate PowerPoint, but I also hate missing uh, things from my notes. Even worse. So verse 13 through 17, a right perspective on suffering and trusting God. Let's read that again. Now you will want to who now who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good, but even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it for it. You don't worry, so don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life, and if someone asks about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that's what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. So, in his instructions to his readers, Peter wants us to commit to righteous living. First and foremost, commit to live a life pleasing to God. First and foremost, even if it leads to suffering. Even if it leads to suffering, do not be shaken from your commitment to live a life pleasing to God. Live a righteous life. Peter grounds our response to suffering in Christ's suffering. And we see this pattern throughout the New Testament. Our suffering has meaning and purpose and value because Jesus' suffering had meaning, purpose, and value. He outlines, he outlines three proper responses to suffering, the suffering we might face. Peter outlines three proper responses to suffering that we might face. And this comes from the Asbury uh, Bible Commentary. Uh, he says, first, uh, we, he, we must not be intimidated by our adversary's threats. In verse uh, 14b, the second part of verse 14, what he's saying there is we must not be intimidated by our adversary's threats. And then in verse 15, the first part of 15 is the second proper response. We must recognize Jesus is the master of all situations. 
Jesus is master over all situations. That, that's what we see in verse 15a, the first part of 15. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And then verse 15b, where he goes on to say, and if someone asks about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. We find the third proper response. We must be prepared to share the reason for our hope. So Peter starts off by saying, you know, hey, usually doing good will not lead to suffering. But sometimes it does. Usually uh, doing good will not lead to suffering. But when it does, we look to Christ. We look to Christ, we worship Him as Lord, and we bear faithful witness to a watching world. And we do so with gentleness and respect in order to keep a clear conscience. In order to keep our conscience clear, then you will be, ad you'll be vindicated against your adversary, and God will reward you, and He will uphold you, and bring you safely home. He will bring you safely home. In the first century, this was necessary guidance. This was crucial guidance for the fledgling church, who at various times was coming under severe attack simply for worshiping Jesus. We too must heed Peter's counsel, as we too are following Christ in an increasingly hostile world, and we likewise must be prepared. So please don't hear this as just something the first century brothers and sisters in Christ needed to know. This is something we need to know as well. We need to understand and we need to uh, have uh, embraced in our understanding that sometimes it leads to suffering, yet ours is to hold fast to Christ. So let's look at verse 18. Christ suffered for your sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. This is a transitional statement about Christ's suffering and his victory. Why do we not need to worry about suffering? Why do we not need to worry about being harmed by the evil around us? Well, according to the Apostle Peter, the answer is simple, because Jesus Christ has already suffered, he's already died, and he has overcome. He has already overcome. The victory has already been won. Those who belong to Jesus Christ are secure, and they will be brought home safely to God by our faith in Him. Evil and sin and death, they have already been conquered. That is our hope. That is our enduring hope, that in Christ, the victory is already won. Sin, death, and suffering, regardless of how dark and severe it may be, they do not have the last word, because the victory is already won. Uh, the Asbury Bible Commentary goes on to explain it this way. Christ's suffering signaled two victories of crucial significance for Christians who suffer. The first victory is over sin and, de and death. The first victory is over sin and death, which is uh, its chief consequence. Christians who suffer as Christ did have victory over sin, which indicates that even physical death cannot harm them ultimately. Therefore, they need not fear, even in the presence of mortal danger. The tyranny of death has ended. The second victory signaled by Christ's suffering is victory over the demonic spirits that inspire the evil adversaries of suffering Christians. So hear this, all our suffering and all of our loss in life is restored in Christ 
through His victory over sin and death. Even for now, it may feel like great loss, but it's great gain, ultimately, because of Jesus and His victory. Let's look at verse 19 through 22. So he went, Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now, save, which now saves you not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God and all the angels and authorities and powers except His authority. This is an insight into Jesus' authority and His saving power through His death and resurrection. So now we read the part that has raised eyebrows for centuries. That part that feels like maybe the extra screws on the kitchen floor after the island has been put together, right? What is this? Why is it here and what could it possibly mean? Well, I'm going to invite my good friend Tom Wright to explain this to us. <laughs> N.T. Wright helps us here. He says, Here is a bit of local color uh, which will help. One of the better known books in, the first, in first century Judea, Judaism, much treasured by many who were hoping for God to do some great act of liberation, was the one we now know as First Enoch. It wasn't actually written by the Enoch we find in Genesis 5, 18-24, but it was written to look as though it was. Has anyone heard of 1st Enoch before? Maybe familiar with it? The book traces the woes and problems of the world right back, in particular, to the wicked angels of Genesis chapter 6, spiritual beings who, in the time of Noah, rebelled against God their Creator. The book, One Enoch, celebrates, in particular, the victory that God has won or will win over these spiritual beings. What Peter is saying here is that the victory over these dark forces of evil has in fact been won through the Messiah and, and the after His resurrection, after He has been made alive by the Spirit, as in verse 18, He, the Messiah, made this definitive announcement to the spirits. They had indeed been judged. Their power, such as it was, had been broken. This ought then to function as a considerable encouragement to the to the little group of Christians who face persecution from their local authorities and from the shadowy spiritual forces that seem to give them their power. Ever since their original rebellion, these forces have been wielding usurped power. Now the Messiah has triumphed over them, and deep down they know it. Jesus the Messiah has fulfilled the hope of Israel by defeating all the spiritual powers in the world, the ones who were responsible for wickedness and corruption from ancient times. It may not look like it to the little Christian communities facing the possibility of suffering, but their baptism places them alongside the Messiah in His victory. They must hold their heads up, keep their consciences clear, and trust that His victory will be played out in the world to which they are bearing witness. Okay, uh, First Enoch. Among, the, among the, the Jewish believers, this would have been a familiar text, the, the book of First Enoch. It was not considered part of scriptural canon. It wasn't part of the uh, Old Testament scriptures, but it was a common, uh, uh, a familiar writing at the time. And it is this book that most theologians and historians think that Peter is referring to um, when he mentions the uh, demons or the... Uh, the uh, 
uh, spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God from long ago. He's referring to a, a writing that was familiar, but it's not included in the Old Testament. It's not included in our Bibles. And so that's what I think creates that gap for us. Like, wait, what? We don't find this, this uh, reference anywhere in the pages we have in our Bible. So that can create a little bit of a hiccup for us. And that's why I think we feel like it's an extraneous piece. Like, wait, we don't know exactly what to do with this. But he, understand, he's, he's wanting to give encouragement here. Due to Christ's resurrection, we are able to respond to God with a clean conscience through the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that has been at work since the beginning. And Christ's work has been Christ's accomplishment, his life, death, resurrection have been in accordance with God's plan from the beginning. Uh, Peter draws his readers' attention to Noah, which is a story we're familiar with. Uh, and how God saved them and him and his family from the flood. He then connects that idea to believer's baptism. Anyone think that was kind of a strange turn? You know, you don't think about the flood and the ark and stuff like that as being a, an analogy to baptism, right? Now, baptism symbolized several things to the early church. Uh, first, baptism had long been associated with uh, ritual cleansing, uh, preparation to worship at the temple. You'd go down into what was called a mikvah and uh, bathe yourself to make yourself clean to enter into the Lord's presence to worship Him. So it's long been associated with cleansing yourself before worshiping at the temple. Second, and more centrally, uh, baptism to the early church rec uh, res uh, reminded them of, it was a symbol of resurrection, of uh, being buried with Christ in his death and being reborn through the waters uh, from death to life in Christ. That's why when you're baptized, we say things like, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in his death and raised to walk in new life. Just like you were born the first time through water, you're born the second time through faith in the waters. Uh, this was the understanding there. But now, Peter brings about, kind of turns our attention to a third understanding of baptism. Peter associates baptism with the deliverance from God's wrath on a sinful and defiant world. This is a picture of being saved through the waters of baptism, just like uh, Noah and his family were saved through the waters of the flood in the ark. We are saved from God's wrath upon the world through the waters of baptism. The New International Bible Commentary explains it this way. As in the days of Noah, a small minority of the faithful rode to safety in the ark, so the antitype of Noah's company, the Christians, likewise a tiny minority, are born to safety through the waters of baptism. The inference from all of this is that, as Christ was triumphant through suffering, and as Noah's little group were vindicated by deliverance, so those who now suffer for righteousness' sake will finally be partakers of glory. Is that helpful? Maybe you can really revisit this passage. You have a little bit of uh, some more tools in your toolkit to understand what is he talking about here. There's something being said here. We just have to work on it a little bit more. The Apostle Paul expounds this idea in his letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 6, illustrating how sin's power has been broken by Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, and we join with him, guess what? Through our baptism. So this theme shows up in Romans chapter 6. You can flip over there real quick. Romans 6, uh, verses 1 through 11. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, Well then... 
Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of His wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined Him in His death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with Him in His death, we will also be raised to life as He was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we also will live with Him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and He will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. So, whew, that was a lot. <laughs> Once we step back from this passage and kind of just take it all in, take in the whole scene, these various parts, uh, they start to fit together. They start to fit together, and what seemed like extra pieces actually seem to find, the, they seem to find their place. Turns out, Peter knew what he was trying to say. And we do well to listen closely. We do well to press in and to diligently seek the whole counsel of Scripture. Be careful when you approach Scripture coming to difficult or uh, parts of it that are difficult to interpret or understand. Fight the urge to step back or just skip over it. Press in. There's lots of tools out there uh, to help you dig in and understand what it, what it was uh, understood uh, to mean to the first century believers or to the, uh, the contemporary audience in which this was originally written. That can help us understand what it means to us in our time, in our place. So fight the urge. Stick with it. We may indeed endure suffering. We may indeed be persecuted because of our faith in Jesus Christ. As our, as our world becomes increasingly hostile toward the church, we must be, pre be prepared to, at times, suffer for doing good. And when we do, may we endure faithfully as we worship Jesus as Lord of our entire lives. And as we gently and respectfully share the hope we have in Him with a clear conscience before our Creator. All the while, may we hold fast to the faith that we profess in our baptism. Uh, may we profess, uh, hold fast, fast to the faith uh, we profess in, in the symbol of our salvation and our deliverance in Jesus Christ as we have passed through the waters with Him. And then, may we suffer well, and may we rest in the victory that Jesus has won as we await the day when He brings us safely home to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the wisdom of Your Word. Thank You for the way it challenges us, both intellectually but also spiritually. Lord, I pray that we would be mature enough to study Scripture, to be a student, but to believe that You're telling us the truth. That we would uh, have the, the, the courage to believe that Jesus has overcome. He has already won the victory. And that nothing that can happen to us in our lifetime, any suffering for doing right, any persecution for our faith in Jesus Christ, it does not have the last word. 
It may be uncomfortable. It may even be deadly. But it cannot take from us that which you have given. God, just as, just as through faith we have already passed from death into life, no one can take away that life that's come to us through faith in Jesus. So God, may we, at the bedrock of our being, trust in that, rely upon that, believe in that. So God, uh, I pray that you be with my friends here, my brothers and sisters that may have had some faltering faith. Maybe they've uh, been concerned, they've been worried. Maybe they've been confused and frustrated by Scripture, especially at parts like this that don't uh, lay out all the answers in an easy way to understand sometimes. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in this room. Pray that you give us ears to see, or <laughs> how about eyes to see? Ears to hear and hearts to understand all that you'd have us know. God, grow us in the likeness of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Hey, today we're going to share communion together. This is a chance for us to approach the table and to remember, to recall, to enter in once again to that great sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Through his body that was broken and his blood that was shed for the remission of sin for the salvation of the world, for all who believe that we would pass from death into life through faith in Him. This is what we do and we come and re remember. We recall, we say, yes, thank you. We remember, Jesus. We remember. We're told from Scripture that it's appropriate for us to spend some time in introspection and preparation. And so we're going to take a moment here, a prayer of sitting with the Lord of examining our life and saying, God, show me. Show me how I need to grow. Show me the things I need to leave behind. Show me the things I need to take up in my life. So that we can approach this uh, well-prepared, ready to do so as an act of remembrance, but also an act of worship. Also understand when you come to be served, uh, this is for all who have followed Jesus. We. This is open to you. You don't have to have ever been to Hope and Anchor before. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you can remember the time when He saved you. When you, were pa when you passed from death into life by believing in Him, come and share with us. It's our, it's, our, it's our honor for you to share with us. So take a few moments, and then when you're ready to be served, come down the center aisle, and then return down the side aisles. Once everyone's been served, we will partake together.